This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the first place I go to keep my business skills sharp. They offer over 150,000 books on business, finance, planning, and much more. They also have a great selection of fiction that keeps me entertained when I'm just not up for some serious content. I love it because I can buy a book, download it to my iPhone, and listen while running errands or at the gym. Get your free trial at freelancershow.com slash audible. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com slash CodeSchool. This episode is brought to you by ProXPN. If you're out and about on public Wi-Fi, you never know who might be listening. With ProXPN, you no longer have to worry. ProXPN is a VPN solution which sends all of your traffic over a secure connection to one of their servers around the world. To sign up, go to ProXPN.com and use the promo code TMTCS, short for Teach Me to Code Screencasts, to get 10% off for life. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 143 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel we have Curtis McHale. Hello. Reuven Lerner. Hi everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Before we get going, I just want to briefly ask for a little bit of help. This is something that I am not very good at because I'm a very proud person, but this show in particular and a couple of the other shows, they don't quite bring in enough to pay for themselves. And I want to keep doing them. I don't have any plans to cancel any shows, but I would appreciate a little bit of help. So if you want to help out the show, you can do a couple of things. You can join the forum for this show. Uh, That's at freelancershow.com slash forum. You can also go sign up for JS Remote Conf, which is a remote conference for JavaScript developers. If you're not a JavaScript developer, then you know I don't expect you to get excited about that. The other thing you can do is you can go to devchat.tv slash donate, and uh, if you want to just give away some money. And finally, I'm working on a podcasting book, course, etc., and you can get all that information at pickuppodcasting.com. And so I should have some webinars that you can sign up for if you're interested in podcasting, which is actually a terrific thing for freelancers. So I'm just going to throw all that out there. And uh, if any of that appeals to you, then I really appreciate your help. Also, if you have any suggestions for sponsors for this show, I would love to hear them. And you can either tweet them at me, cmaxw on Twitter, or you can just email me, chuck at devchat.tv. All right. Uh, we also have a special guest this week, and that is Jonathan Stark. Hello. Uh, do you have a brother named Tony? I wish. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> <laughs> Borrow the suit once in a while. That's right. I, I need to be in L.A. in two hours. <laughs> yeah. I get a lot of Game of Thrones questions, too. I, I've never seen that show, but I guess there's a family named Stark on there. I listened to about two-thirds of the book, and then I was just done with it. So I think mm-hmm. there is. I think one of the families is Stark. I didn't even think about that. Someday so you, I'll catch up with my TV watching. There you go. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Uh, Sure. My name's Jonathan Stark. I'm a mobile consultant based in Providence, Rhode Island, and I help retail brands kick ass in mobile. So do you help them with mobile apps or mobile web pages or just being awesome on phones or... That's a combination of things. Mostly strategy. That's my main income. So when, when a company is finally ready to take the plunge and address the mobile thing, then uh, I help them you know, with uh, how to get from where they are to where they need to go. So it saves them a lot of time and money, stuff that they could probably figure out on their own, but it would, you know, big companies could easily waste a hundred or hundreds of thousands of dollars doing something crazy, uh, learning the hard way. But I also do uh, training. So after a strategy session, usually what happens is 
I often recommend that they take their existing web team because a lot of big companies already have a, a .com site that they do in-house and train them on how to sort of make the leap to mobile. There's, it's not really that different designing for the mobile web than it is for the desktop, but it does. you have to kind of unlearn a lot of things and mm-hmm. start, start small and work your way up, aggressively use progressive enhancement. Uh, a lot of times there's a mess to clean up in the uh, CMS or they need to put services in front of some legacy systems that don't play nice with mobile, that sort of thing. So, yeah, a little bit of training and then I'll do like, you know, ad hoc retainer stuff where people just pay me by the month to pick my brain, basically. Cool. You know what I'm going to ask next, right? What's your hourly rate? <laughs> I do not have an hourly rate. <laughs> well, we brought you on the show because... uh you know, we wanted to talk about, you know, how do you get away from hourly billing or why is hourly billing crazy? And I get that question all the time. What's your hourly rate? And what do you say? Isn't that funny? It's a stupid question. I mean, like, I understand why people ask it, but what they're really asking you is almost an ego thing. Like, how good do you think you are relative to your peers? Because that's kind of where people get their hourly rate from. What they should really be asking you is how much it's going to cost me to do this project. Yes. Because because they never ask, they say, oh, how much, what's your hourly rate? And if you say a hundred bucks, they're like, oh, he's, he's kind of inexpensive. And if you say a thousand dollars an hour, they're like, are you crazy? But you don't never get a chance to say, yeah, but I can finish the whole project in one hour or, or whatever. Yeah. So it's just, it's just a silly question, but it is the, the mentality though of the procurement process in our industry is just set up for that to be the default first question. So you do have to kind of get around it. Yeah, I think it varies with my clients. You know, I'll tell them a hundred or one hundred and fifty bucks an hour, and right. I mean, I, ha- half I've of them, doing, half of them are like, "Wow, that's a great doing, deal," and half of them are like, <gasps> "You mean you're not twenty bucks an hour? I thought you were just going to write a dumb little script that did this." Yeah, it's not the question they should be asking, really. Yeah, I've been in this business for close to twenty years now. Uh, shocking as that is, always to say, or to hear myself say it, and when I talk to clients, almost always the first question or the second question or like worst case the third question is okay and how much do you charge per hour and i don't think they're asking it as a way of ranking i think or, or ego i think they want to know and in fact this is what they tell me will it fit into their budget or not now of course you could argue that hourly rate times number of hours well there are two variables there, not just one <laughs> um but no small number of clients or potential clients have said to me, oh, no way can I work with you because of that hourly rate. And yet the solution, and perhaps I'm jumping the gun here, the solution that you and some other people have suggested in terms of value-based pricing it sounds suspiciously like project-based pricing to me, which I've always been gun-shy about trying because I'm so worried that my estimates will be wrong and then I'll end up doing tons of work for free. I mean, I could jump in right there if you want. There's a, if you did give a fixed bid for a project or, you know, however you come up with the number, if you give a fixed dollar amount for a project and, you know, you can underestimate that just as easily as you can underestimate an hourly project, right? The difference is the fallout. So if you underestimate an hourly project and you exceed the hours, then your life turns into kind of a nightmare. Uh, you end up fighting with the client. They start going over your hourly reports with a fine-tooth comb, asking you questions like, how come the, the data import took this long last week and longer this week? And it just turns into a horrible administrative disaster area. If you underestimate a value-based project, whatever the fixed bid is, however you come up with the number, the punishment is that you just do more development work. 
and so your hourly rate for the overall project goes down, but your quality of life remains the same. You don't have to, you know, suffer through all of that fight with the client. Uh, and it, in the event that you do underbid a, um, a value-based project, the client ends up loving, like they'll definitely hire you again because you're taking the risk with them and you're basically putting your money where your mouth is. You're saying, I'm an expert. I know how long this is going to take. And if I'm wrong, that's my fault, not yours. I really like the way you put it. You're taking the risk with them. I'm probably going to put that, that on my one website. That is one of the most insightful things I've ever heard in favor of project-based pricing or right. that combination of things. Well, the, the other thing that I explained, because I've been pushing more toward either weekly billing or weekly pricing or project pricing or feature pricing, you know, where it's, okay, you know, here's what it's going to cost you put in this feature in this application, you know, provided it's large enough that I just don't feel like estimating or, you know, pricing out the entire thing. And then it's like, and then you can decide if it's worth it or not, you know, is the ROI mm -hmm. consistent with what I'm telling you it's going to cost to build it? And uh, yeah, exactly. You're giving them the information they need to make a value judgment when they need to make it. Where if you give them an estimate, if it turns out that the ROI is not there, they don't find out until it's way too late. Like they've already paid you a ton of money. They're 80% done, let's say. They're not going to stop now, but everybody gets angry. Well, the other thing that I've seen with hourly billing I want to point out is that, so my hourly rate is high relative to most other dev shops out there. And a lot of times they compare my hours to other people's hours. They think it's apples to apples and it's not. Um, you know, just due to the skill sets and whatever. But I have had at least two or three clients come back to me afterward and say, I wound up spending, you know, 15000 or whatever dollars. I have one friend in particular, he's $14,000 into a dev shop on a job that I bid for him at like $4,000. Mm -hmm. And he has basically nothing to show for it. Yeah, uh, that, oh, that statement, that statement would haunt me when I used to bill by the hour. Yeah. Well, the client calls you, you know, you're 150 hours into a project and they say exactly that. I've spent all this money and I've got nothing to show for it. And it's true because the thing doesn't work yet. Yep. And it's brutal. And, you know, the fingers start pointing and, well, you know, you keep changing your mind about stuff and issuing all these changes. It just turns into a nightmare. Yep. And it's, it's not good for anyone. And they're not going to hire you again, probably. You know, it's... It's just a mess. I mean, it's fundamentally flawed. The whole concept is fundamentally flawed because you're measuring the wrong thing. You might as well charge by the pixel. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's just this arbitrary thing that's easy to measure, so they measure it. But at the end of the day, I mean, we're all building software for businesses. Like, we're all charging enough money, I'm sure, that these aren't hobby projects for people who are just putting up blogs. This is like, these are systems and websites for going concerns, right? So they don't want their homepage redesigned because they're sick of it. They want more sales or they want, uh, you know, they want to get more uh, job applications in because they're trying to hire people or they want their customer service calls to go down. Like they want some measurable business outcome from the work and that's worth something to them. And the only number that makes any sense whatsoever to base your cost on or your fee to them on is a subset or a percentage of that overall value to them. And if you know or if you can figure out at least ballpark what the value to them is for a particular feature or project or whatever, and you charge, let's say, a tenth of that, they're going to hire you every single time. Over, It's like a 10x return on their investment every single time. And they never have to worry about blowing the budget, going over, having to go back to the well for more money, change requests, none of that stuff. The tricky part, of course, is figuring out what the value is. 
Well, I would say there's another tricky part, too, which is figuring out what are the goals of the project and what are the specifications, right? Because one of the reasons why I've been so adamant about using hourly billing for so many years, although in the last six months to a year, I've definitely begun to change my tune. I'm just trying to figure out how to do it, is that software is so complex and so malleable and so hard to estimate in many cases, and the projects can end in different ways, that I feel like if I go in with a fixed bid, then I'm setting myself up for failure because either my estimate will be wrong because I was wrong or the estimate will be wrong because the client will claim, oh, actually A, B, and C were also included. Didn't you know that? Well, that, I mean, come and on. And so hourly billing is like, has, has been my well, like hourly billing has basically been my way to say, okay, you know what? Sometimes things take longer than others. But believe me, you're very convincing, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that this has been sort of my attitude for many years that I'm slowly but surely peeling back in the face of things like what, what you're saying. Yeah, but we still need to address it, right? I mean, you know, if they add things in, then hourly billing just, you know, it kind of slides up to accommodate it, right? Yes, right, no. right. I mean, it depends. Like sometimes people like scope can creep, you know, the person who probably knows what the goal is. Where do you start with this? First of all, you shouldn't even take on an hourly project if you don't know what the goals are, mm-hmm. because you could get a list of deliverables from the company, uh, your project contact or whatever, and you could deliver all those things. But if it was a bad idea in the first place, they're going to get no ROI from it. Or if it doesn't, if the people involved don't understand what the goals are, what the desired business outcomes are from the people above them who told them to go hire you, then you could do exactly what they told you to do and still it would be a failure. They might not blame you because you did what they asked for, but it's still a failure. So you really shouldn't take on any project unless you know what the desired business outcomes are. Because if you do, then you're, in my opinion, doing a major disservice to the client. You're just a pair of hands doing as you're told. And it may or may not turn into an increase in sales or whatever. So if you, you know, there's a lot of, it, there could be lots of different goals. And if you don't know what they are, you're basically Right, look, I mean, like, so I had this blind, project blind. that I worked on. I had this project that I worked on for a few months over, I guess it was like July through October. And it was on an hourly basis, but the client basically saw it as a fixed budget thing. And they also had, in my opinion, totally crazy, unrealistic opinions or ideas about what was included. So we did what they'd asked for. And they said, oh, you know, we have this short list of fixes you need to make. And the short list of fixes was actually like 75 things long. And one of them included completely overhauling the login system. And when we said to them, you know, these aren't really small fixes, they said, oh, yes, they are. Now, we then said, fine, we're billing by the hour on this. But then, and this is this is why you're being so convincing, there was a lot of arguing about it. At the end of the day, what happened? We gave them software that I believe was excellent, but they left us. And they left us because they were convinced that we had screwed them over or cheated them. Right. And in a sense, I'm not going to say you did. I don't know what the details are, but in, in general, in the industry, in our industry, billing by the hour is basically, it's what gives consultants a bad name because... It almost all like when you deliver an estimate, people don't hear estimate. People hear that's how much it's going to cost. And right, yes. right, <laughs> always true. Yeah, and maybe it'll come under. How often do you actually come in under estimate? Never. One in ten. One in a hundred. I've even played the game where it's like, okay, here's the best case. Here's the worst case. We're going to come in somewhere between. And then they still hear it's going to cost best case. 
and then they get upset when I right. when I actually say, "Here's where I think I'm going to land," and I usually land pretty close, but they mm-hmm. saw best case, and that's all they heard. Well, so here's my thing: if we're making an estimate, like when I someone comes to me and they says, "Hey, you know," they say, "Hey, we've got this project we want you to do. Can you give us, you know, how much is going to cost?" I feel like I should take the risk for my estimating. Mm-hmm. Why should I put the risk for my bad estimating on them? I should, if I'm an expert, I'm charging expert rates. Why should I put the risk on them? That because I'm a bad estimator, it's my fault, not theirs. And you could even say, well, what if the client allows the scope to creep? Again, I blame the expert. The expert should be able to control the client. And if it, the client is, is an expert at their business, they're an expert at their job, they're not an expert at building websites or, or internal systems, that kind of thing. And they need guidance. They need a, a trusted partner, and that's where we come in. And if we're basically just turning around and saying, oh, well, you didn't tell me you wanted all your data imported from the old system and the new system, like that wasn't one of the deliverables. And they look at you like, how are we supposed to use the new system with no data in it? Then that, you're not really being an expert. You know, you you just really didn't think it through. And I feel like it, that can get complicated. So with my quotes, I take it up a level and I don't talk about deliverables. I talk about what the outcomes are. Like, what are the desired outcomes? You guys want to have a 50% increase in job applicants. You guys want a 20% decrease in customer service phone calls. And I don't put anything in the quote about like what color the login screen is going to be or anything like that. Nothing like that. That's not on the table. So like my quotes are like three pages long at the most. And that includes a cover page. Okay, so what stage do you then get into the nitty gritty of not why you're doing it and the value they're going to get, but what you're going to do specifically? Because I mean, at the end of the day, oh, I see. So they basically say, fine, these are our business goals. Go. Mm -hmm. And you basically come back to them and you say, and, and it could be that you've developed software. It could be you've waved a magic wand. They don't have to know or care. If they've achieved their business goals, then you're good. And if not, then you go back and do more. Right. I think the big difference here that he's saying is that he goes in as the consultant, right? Which he said at the beginning, but not just as a consultant to build some software, a consultant to help them achieve their business goal. Right. So that's what I usually do. I help someone get more sales on their site or get more members or, you know, they have a login issue or something like that. We're going in as a consultant overall and I happen to write software at the same time time. And I think, Ruben, you're thinking of it more as I'm going in as a consultant that writes software for you. Right. So that's true, but that's also, and maybe this is my positioning, right? But that's also often how people approach me, right? They oh, have oh, yeah, a business yeah. problem. They know what the business problem is and they need someone to fill in the hole. And so when I start pushing back on business goals, sometimes it works really well, but often I get these very funny reactions like, why are you asking about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Every, almost always when someone comes to me, they already think they know what they want me to do to solve the problem. And they skip right over what the problem is. They say, oh, we need you to build all of these reports that can automatically be generated and downloaded as PDFs. And I'll be like, okay, well, why? Like, why, what are we trying to achieve here? And they'll be, you know, and they might, like you said, they might say, look, we, we just want you to do it. Don't, you know, we don't, we don't need you asking these questions. And I say, well, there's a million ways I could do that. And I want to, if, if I don't understand the ultimate goal, I might go off into the gutter. When you're building software, there, you make thousands of decisions a day that you're not going to contact the client about. Mm-hmm. You know, like, is this software a stopgap and you're getting a huge enterprise solution in a year, but you need something in the meantime? 
or is this software solution going to be a foundation for the next 10 years of your growth? Because I build it differently in those two cases. You know, even though they're still going to get downloadable PDFs at the end of the day, you can't do a good job if you don't know what the ultimate goal is. And it can be a little bit of a, you know, they might feel like you're, they're sort you know, they're like, I'm the customer and you're the vent, you know, the vendor or the consultant. And it's like you're looking a gift horse in the mouth, kind of challenging their assumptions by pushing back on them. But that's the difference between being a laborer and an expert. Like if you just want to be a pair of hands and dig a hole, then they say dig a hole over there and you dig a hole over there. But that's commodity level type of work. An expert knows why to dig the hole. Otherwise, you can't, you just no reason to dig it. Right. So yeah, you don't go to a surgeon and say, hey, like I need heart surgery because my heart feels funny. They you go <laughs> and they diagnose you and then they treat you for that diagnosis, right? Even if you go in and say like, you know, we had our kids in the hospital a few times over the last few weeks with different things. And we said, these are all the symptoms we see. We believe it is this. And the doctor did a whole bunch of checking and then gave us prescriptions for that. If they just gave us a prescription based on what we said, they'd lose their job, right? Right, exactly. Yep. And that ties into a, a big underlying premise of mine, which is why do I go around telling people that to stop hourly billing? That's that's just going to make more competitors for me, right? Like, why why am I evangelizing this? And the reason is because our entire industry has this cancer on it that there's no regulating body, there's no AMA for consultants. So we're like self-policing. And I just feel like as an industry, we'll never get better at things like doing estimates or achieving business goals or actually adding value to our clients if we don't, as an industry, all grow up a little bit and focus on the real goals and not the task that we were assigned. Well, I want to push that button a little bit too because, I mean, how many of us have had that client come to us and they're like, we really, really need this problem solved. You know, we really need this app built or we really need this, you know, service available or whatever it is, right? And then Mm -hmm. um, you start talking to them, you start figuring out what their problem is. And the second you start actually talking about delivering something or, you know, get into some of the nitty gritty details to really understand what they need solved and what the factors are, they start getting skittish because they've already been messed over by two other consultants, right? And so it's not just a... Well, there are these, you know, bad consultants, so to speak, out there. You know, I don't think they're being bad on purpose. I think they're just, they weren't the right person to work on that client's project. Some of them aren't the right person to work on any projects, but that's another issue. So you can genuinely help them. You can genuinely help them at a price that makes a lot of sense for the value they're going to get, but they're gun shy because somebody else has already messed it up. Right. And that's, that's part of the thing I'm railing against, but a way to address that is to, first of all, to say, well, you know, this is not going to go over budget. Like, this is the price. Mm-hmm. I will not charge you a dime over that. And you can talk to every client I've had since I started my business. And every single one will tell you that I honored the original price, you know, even when that meant I worked an extra year on projects. So that is definitely one way to address that, um, you know, that client who's been burned before. And the other thing is mm-hmm. to just raise your, to focus your marketing marketing and raise your profile in the industry so that people already trust you when they have come to you. So like, you know, I've written a a couple of books and that has this sort of magic wand effect where, oh, this is the guy that wrote the book. Like we definitely want to hire him. We just, you know, we don't know if we can afford him, but we definitely, this is the guy we want. Uh, So that also kind of mitigates some of the, we've been burned before type of issues because they, they'll trust someone who's a recognized expert more quickly than someone they found on Fiverr. Fiverr. 
And most freelancers or small business owners I talk to want to jump right to being that expert without writing a book first or blogging a lot or releasing a bunch of open source code. They just want to be the expert with no work. And that's the same magic wand that a lot of clients come to us from. And we tell them they can't do it, but I don't It's like the mechanic that has a broken car, right? Curtis, I know that you yep. don't do hourly billing. I know that you do weekly billing. But my impression is that mm, you're sort of. weekly billing... Okay, because I I, I, didn't, I didn't think that you like tied it to a certain specification or like you're not doing a project based estimate or project based quote. You're basically saying, and again, I might have gotten this wrong. I'm going to do as much as I can to give you value during each week, and I'm going to give you more value than you're you're paying for. Thus, you'll have a good ROI. But that means potentially, you know, you do three weeks of work and you've not gotten through everything. And if if I understood that correctly, that's different than what Jonathan's talking about, right? Yeah, I would say it depends now. Uh, last time we had a real long talk about it, then yes, Ruben, you're exactly correct. That's how I did it. Now I do um, value-based pricing and break up my billing sequences into weekly. So if it's you know a four-week project, or that's the plan, and then by the end of four weeks, they paid me 100% of the project. Now I've been hired on a few times as, I guess, staff augmentation, in which case we talk about value a bunch, and then we work out what the weekly rate is for basically having me on your team for a certain amount of time. And I go in as a consultant, and then it's a flat rate per week, and we get done what we can get done each week. Yeah, I do value-based fees. The, the value-based fees that I'm talking about are specifically for software projects. So the, the kind of thing that takes at least a week, uh, but probably more like a month, maybe three months, that kind of a thing, like a build, a thing that has phases and a release and all of that. And it's interesting that you bring up the payment terms because I think that is a, a critical piece of working this model successfully. Um, one of the things that I insist on is uh, 100% payment upfront. So like part of the benefit of telling the client this is how much it's going to be is that we know how much it's going to be. <laughs> so, mm. I, you know, if it was an estimate, I can't say, oh, I want the money up front because we don't know how much it's going to be yet. Uh, but since it is going to be, you know, it's going to be $100,000, uh, 100% paid up front. And they're like, uh, and you'd be surprised how many people are like, okay, here's a check. Um, get the money behind us. We never, you never have to worry about money again for the rest of the project. There's no hours tracking. There's no invoicing. There's nothing. Um, sometimes they'll balk and you say, okay, uh, how about 50% up front and 50% in 30 days, regardless of the status of the project or whether or not it's been released. And they'll usually say, okay, that, that seems fair. You know, he compromised with us and that seems fair. So what ends up happening is you're never waiting for that last check because pro- software projects don't end on a particular day. Like there's a, there's usually like a launch day or a delivery date, but it's kind of, I always say it's kind of like a lake freezing. Like at some point, you know it's safe, but you're never sure exactly when it happened. And that's what it is. That's what it's like with software projects where it's really hard to say like, okay, all the bugs are gone. You know, it's done. So I just say, we don't want to worry about that. I'll just, I'm going to, I don't want to have a cutoff date for that last payment. You pay me that last thing and we're done. I'd rather have the payments out of the way in advance and I'll just keep working until you're happy with it. And people are busy. They're not going to keep bugging you for stuff if their goals have been reached. You know, they, they don't care. They have other things to do. So that, do you- that was, that was going to be my next question, actually, which is like, I can so easily imagine, and maybe this is just some of the clients I've had over the years. Like, if they were to pay me upfront, fantastic for everyone. I totally see how that gets rid of the money thing, gets rid of the hourly tracking thing and billing thing. Great. And, and I can see where I would, 
achieve their business goals and I'd be super happy with it. And they'd say, yeah, but, and they'd keep coming back to me. And you're saying then the real world at a certain point it peters out because they just have better things to do with their time. If I, I can, I'm hearing loud and clear that you've had that experience that you've been nickeled and dimed by clients and then you pull out your baseball bat and, and hit them with it with, you know, a change request or, or whatever. And, you know, and it's like, oh, we can keep working on this, but it's going to keep costing you. You know, you should really, you know, and, and to me, you're setting yourself up for a contentious relationship with all of your clients. And so they're responding to that. If you're having that experience a lot, I don't think it's the clients. I think it's a natural response to being in a contentious relationship. And if you put your neck on the line with them that, you know, and you, you know, you work with, first of all, this, you know, is predicated on not working with jerks. I mean, you, you want to work with people that you get along with and trust. Like my rule is I, I'm not going to work for anybody that I wouldn't want to go out for drinks with. And if you reach a conceptual agreement before the project starts and you see eye to eye with the project contact, they're not going to mess with you. They're not. If you trust them, they'll trust you and they'll treat you with respect because you're partners. You're not some guy digging a hole. And I think a lot of right. the people that try this don't have a good client vetting process in any fashion. Like mm. they just take people that come and, and then they say, this didn't work for me and they nickeled and dimed me. And well, you just took whoever came. Like it's not good. Like I didn't marry the first girl I found. I, you know, <laughs> dated someone for a number of years and just said, Hey, I'm going to hang out with them. Why wouldn't I do that with my clients? I spend more time with my clients than I do with my family, and I chose my family to be someone I would want to spend all my time with. So that's the type of clients you should choose. Right. Yep. So one other thing that I'm curious about is sometimes I have clients come to me, and they're, it's not just a, hey, we need this built, but it's, you know, we have a big trade show coming up, or our license expires in however long, and we need this replaced, mm-hmm. or this is costing us so much money every day, and so... We need it done in X amount of time or it's going to cost us more than we can deal with. Mm-hmm. So how do you make sure that you meet those expectations? Yeah, that's a great question. I typically will never agree to a deadline. Uh, and the reason is, and the reason I give them is true, which is that this is a collaborative project and I can't guarantee a deadline because I'm not in control of it. You know, if, if I send an email and it takes a week to hear back from you, that's fine. That will not bother me. You can go dark for a month. It's, that's totally fine. But I can't promise you that we'll meet a deadline in a situation like that. So what I'll usually do is I say, in, in a perfect world, this could be completed in three months or whatever. And that's if, that's if we are collaborating closely and I'm, there's no communication latency. But then I'm quick to report that that never, ever happens. And that even at the beginning of the project when you, you know, it's the biggest thing you're working on and the client thinks that they'll be getting back to you immediately, they never do. And so I just won't agree to a deadline. The trade show example that you brought up is an example of a potential exception. There are sometimes specific dates like that. And what I'll do then is I'll make the scope variable. So I'll say, all right, we will build this in a way that you will have a working version in time for the trade show. It might not have every single bell and whistle, so we're going to prioritize the things that we want it to do, whatever, you know, if it's a trade show thing, it's probably some kind of lead capture software, or maybe some sales software that they're using in a booth or something like that, or something they want to announce. And I'll make sure that we will have a working version by then, but it might not be done. But I try to avoid those. I really try and get away from the deadline stuff because clients have incredibly unrealistic expectations about their responsiveness. And I I like to accommodate people's schedule. You know, like as the expert, I can say, look, I know you guys are not 
going to be as responsive as you think you are. I've been to this rodeo before and I am set up in a way that that is fine, but I can't promise you a deadline mm-hmm. because of it. The other thing that I'm running into or, you know, that I'm looking at here is, um, let's say that I do have a, a potential client and I do have a potential client that is coming to me with a project that is fairly large, uh, large to the point that, you know, it's going to be a decent size estimate. And so I'm, I'm really leaning toward breaking it apart and saying, you know, the deliverables are phase one and then deliverables for phase two, phase three. Do you ever do that or do you just go for the whole big pie and, you know, count on getting it built and figured out in the time frame that they need? I break it up as much as possible because it's safer for everyone. So I, right. I try to mitigate risk as much as possible. And the way I work with clients, we're partners. So that mitigation rolls up to both of us. I like to have lots of stable points of release, if you want to call it that. So if it can be phased, I definitely try and convince them that that is the way to go. And they're usually pretty open to that because any big business is way more risk averse than a solo consultant like I am. So if I recognize a risk and I say, hey, this is you are really biting off a lot here, we should break it down. Here's the path. These are the core features. We can make this work. This second tier V2 stuff clearly slots in here. And then, you know, there's some like really fancy stuff that would be nice to have that we can put into a third quote. Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely do that. Curtis, are those questions you're asking questions that we should ask in the episode or are you trying to coach Ruben? Oh, there are more questions for Ruben as he was, as I'm bugging him about why he isn't saying no more often to clients and he's saying Mm -hmm. he needs a marketing (laughs) funnel. So because I'm asking him questions to be directed about this is what you need to do. Well, I'm, I'm looking at them and I'm thinking that they're good questions for this topic. So for example... How do you build your sales funnel so that you're getting people who expect to be billed and priced like this as opposed to going to the default for our industry, which is you give me so no much time and I'll funnel? give you so much. No, no, no. But my sales funnel tends to bring me people who expect to work on an hourly basis. And, you know, as much as I can communicate with them and I can educate them, you know, you and I are both better off if we work this other way. Can you build a sales funnel in a way that brings you people that just expect to get a direct bid or a phased bid on their project? Yeah, long before you Um, even talk about the sales funnel, you need to have your ideal clients identified and you need to know where they are and then you need to be writing content for them. Right, I know Ruben like writes in the Linux Journal, and I bet you, I wonder how many of his clients are actually reading Linux Journal or if that's his peers. Oh, zero, zero. Like it's it's funny. People seem to think that I get tons of clients by writing in Linux Journal, and I think I've gotten two over the nearly twenty years I've written there. It's it's just nearly zero because the people who read the column are not the people who are going to hire me to either do projects or to do training. It's a nice credential, though. In your marketing, you can say that you write there. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. valuable. That, yeah. Although they're probably not reading it. It's right. Third party that, endorsement that's, that's of your sure. skills. That's exactly right. The people when I go in, I have to sort of prove myself less because I do that. But so I like you know I maybe am a recognized expert in certain things, but it doesn't. It's not part of the marketing funnel at all. Much as I fooled myself into thinking it was years ago. Gotcha. Was there a question for me in there? I, I, yeah, I, I'm just wondering. So, can <laughs> you sure. can you structure your sales funnel to get people who want value based pricing instead of hourly pricing? 
I haven't done that. I mean, it says it right on my website. It's like the second paragraph on my website, you know, like the differentiator between me and other consultants is that I don't bill by the hour. But I, I know that, that, first of all, that's a relatively recent addition to my site. And I know that when people come to my site, they've already heard about me somewhere else. Like the number one, by far, the number one keyword referred for my site is my name. So people are already, they already know who they're looking for. And anything they find on my site is really, uh, it's more like I try and, and, you know, uh, have all those third party endorsements as obvious as possible. You know, books I've written, columns I've written, et cetera, et cetera. Clients I've worked with, that kind of thing. I mean, honestly, I find that most customers, after they get over that initial, how much is your hourly rate? I don't have one. They're kind of like, oh, well, how do you do it? And I'm like, well, I, I honestly, I don't think hourly rates are fair to clients because it puts all the risk on the client and none of the risk on the consultant. So uh, as an expert, I don't think that's fair. And I, I want to share the risk and the reward, of course, of giving you a fixed price. And that's usually the end of it. Um, there have been a couple of cases with, uh, I can think of one uh, higher ed client where the procurement process just required that they get an hourly rate because they saw that as a way to compare apples to apples, and they were going to basically hire the person who had the lowest hourly rate, which, as we said at the beginning, is basically absurd, mm -hmm. uh, because it totally ignores the number of hours and the quality. It has you know quality we haven't even talked about, but billing in a value-based way for a software project, quality is baked right in because you want the project to you know the more bugs there are, the more your hourly rate goes down if you divide it out. So you know. <laughs> It aligns everyone's interests if I give them a price and I stick to it. Everybody's in the same boat. So, Jonathan, I mean, you've made a very good case and a pretty compelling one, um, I must say, for not hourly billing or for value based. But presumably, you wouldn't do this just if it gave you peace of mind, although maybe so. Um, and, you know, prepayment is also sort of nice. But presumably, you're also making more now than you did when you were doing hourly billing. Is that yeah. true? Oh, yeah. I, in the first year, my income doubled. Like when I was the, the VP of a software firm, we had, uh, I think we had 12 or 13 developers when I left. And, you know, I was making 90 and change. And I went solo and switched. I went solo because I realized that hourly billing was nuts because we were in a financial situation in the firm. And I was like, I'm going to have to, if we fire someone, I'm going to have to fire my best guy because he's the most expensive and he's the fastest. And we have a junior guy <laughs> who's really slow and cheap, and he keeps his customers super happy. He was very personable, and he really he was like a customer service type of guy. And I was like, I can't fire. I, I couldn't figure. I was like, I can't figure this out. Everything is pointing me in the direction of firing our best developer. He's one of the best developers I've ever worked with. We were lucky to have him. And I was like, this something's wrong here. And I thought about it for a week at least. And finally, I was like, oh. It's because we're billing by the hour. If we didn't do that, then our top guy would be like the golden goose that I know he is. Because he just finished stuff so fast I couldn't even keep jobs on. Like I couldn't keep jobs in his queue. He'd just be like, yeah, I'm done with that again. I'm like, well, I just gave you that last week. He's like, that's done. So that was when the light went on for me. So I went to my boss and I said, dude, we got to, I was the VP. He was the, the founder and the president. I was like, dude, we got to, this hourly billing's killing us. Like we're, we're spending so much time trying to optimize our way out of the pain of hourly building, basically treating the symptoms with like reporting, all sorts of reporting tools and me calling up the developers every day and being like, did you log your hours? Did you log your hours? 
And I was like, the problem is we're tracking hours. We should just be giving fixed bit. And he just couldn't get his head around it. He was like, we'll go out of business in the first year. And I'm like, yeah, because you suck at estimating. And the reason why is because you've never suffered from it. You know what I mean? Like you're not, you'll get great at estimating if you are the one who's eating all the hours, you know? So anyway, in my first year after going solo, I doubled my income. And every year after that, it's gone up. So you make way more money. That's just crazy. And it seems counterintuitive as well in one way. And it seems like it makes total sense in another way. And I think what it really comes down to is, yeah, your ability to estimate what it's going to cost and being aligned with that value. And if you're incapable of providing the value, then your income will probably go down. Yeah, you can. I mean, the, the thing we haven't talked about is what happens when it goes horribly wrong, which has happened to me as well. Like I think I briefly mentioned that uh, I took on one gig that literally went a year longer than I expected. And I just never charged them another dime. I worked on it for an additional year, probably at least 10 hours a week. Wow. Uh, never got it. Yeah. But I mean, so my hourly rate maybe went down to 50 from 200. But to this day, we're still friends. They would still hire me if I still did that kind of work. It was fine. It was fine. Another time I had an agreement with a conceptual agreement with a buyer and they sent me a $10,000 payment for the whole thing. And then the next day we had a conference call with the owner of the company who I immediately recognized that I was never going to get along with. And I sent him the money back. I was said, forget it. I'm not doing the job because I know I knew that the personality type was going to destroy the project and that was going to bring me down as well. So things like that happen, like like things that you can't even imagine when you're billing by the hour, like crazy stuff like that. It happens, but I'm telling you, that's like super rare. Very, very rare. And so you well, typically work on just one project at a time or you work juggling a few things each week or each month? These days, I hardly ever do actual development. Uh, these days, it's almost all strategy and retainer stuff, which is either like a half-day strategy session where I'll fly to your company and do a presentation to like your board or the C-suite people, uh, or I'll do a training, which again is kind of like a productized consulting type of thing where you just you show up and you know it's very it's like picking something off a menu. It's like here's here are the modules, you know this is what it costs. Tell me where to go and I'll be there. Those I can do basically like uh, two retainers at a time. Normally, they take 10 to 20 hours a week to really do well and do all the research. Um, when it comes time to do a software project, which I do still do one or two a year software projects, just to make sure that I'm still up to date on the things that I'm advising companies about, because things change so fast in mobile, it's really easy to get behind the times. So once or twice a year, I'll do a software project as well. And uh, let's see, last in 2014, it was the responsive redesign of the Entertainment Weekly site. And uh, I think right before that, I did TechCrunch as well. So yeah, I do. It's, so it's kind of hard to say. Like I, I only ever do one software project at a time now. But thinking back to when I was doing only software development, I'd probably have two to four going at the same time, you know, and they'd be in different stages. Like one of them would go dark for a month. Uh, you know, the other three would be hot and heavy. When somebody would be coming up to a release, you know, it's going to get crazy. So you let everybody else know that your output's going to go down because you've got this one thing that's going to have a crazy deadline, but or not a deadline, you know, whatever it is, you know, you, you have busy weeks and you have slow weeks. So maybe, maybe two, three, four, something like that. So it, it sounds to me, and, and I, I, I mean, I read a bunch of things on your blog as well in advance of this conversation. I mean, it sounds to me like I should just sort of pick a date, and they could even be, I mean, we're recording this on December 30th, so maybe the date should be like January 1st or February 1st. I should just say, from this date forward, 
I am working in the following way. You know, I'll be working in a value-based way with my clients and prepayment and maybe not put it as such on my website. Maybe just copy some of the fantastic text you have on yours. But <laughs> basically, you know, just make the switch and I shouldn't be afraid of it and I, I should not worry, oh my God, my clients are going to hate this. Rather, I should say, uh-huh, this guy's an expert and he's willing to share the risk and let's do cool things together. And basically, if, if I do a good job, and let's hope that I do, then my satisfaction and income and qu- client quality will all go up, which sounds like a fantastic win. Yes. I will caution you, though, that it's very different. So like your proposal process and all the conversations leading up to the proposal will be new for you because you need to, you can't be satisfied with like, oh, I've captured the deliverables that they want me to provide. You can't leave it at that. You need to go in and and push back and get to the why. You got to drill down to the why. And if the person you're talking to doesn't know the answer to the why, then you got to go up the chain to somebody that does. Otherwise you can't take the project. So usually, you know, and, and I do believe that you're right in the long term, it would be, have a very strong benefit to your business in both income and quality of life. But there's also cash flow to worry about and making a drastic shift like that might be better done in stages. Like I left a company, started a brand new company and there was no transition phase. You know, it was like I just started new. So if you are in a situation where you have clients, you're not starting a new company, it's really hard. I've, I've, I mentor people about how to do this and they have a lot of trouble converting people who are used to working with them hourly and perceiving them as a freelancer, or, you know, as basically a pair of hands. They have a really hard time converting them over to a new kind of relationship because it's not just a new billing style. It's a new kind of relationship. So all that said, I do think that no one will ever understand exactly what all this entails and how it makes you feel internally because it feels differently internally unless you try it. So you do need to try it, but I would recommend doing it with like one client. So lead comes in, you get, you know, I'm sure you get leads all the time. You you get these leads and when you've, you want to identify one of them that's a perfect fit for this. So it'll be someone who you get along with, someone that you have a really good rapport with. You see eye to eye, you watch all the same shows, you like the same music, like you really get this person. That's number one. Number two is the job's a slam dunk. Like you know exactly. It's not some crazy new thing like, oh, I've never used Redis before, but I always wanted to. And this might be a good, a good time to use Redis and you know, I can learn that. You, know, you don't want that. You want to have like something you've done a million times and be like, oh, I'm, I'm like really confident in what my costs are going to be. And then when you talk to that person, you know, as you're going through this, make sure you drill down and find out why they want you to do it. Get behind the scenes, find out what the business goals and maybe even personal goals are behind the reason that they picked up the phone to call you. And when that person comes across your radar and, you know, do it, you know, make the quote, fixed bid, say, this is the deal. It's going to be X amount of dollars. I'm not going to charge you another dime and see how it feels. You'll pr- almost certainly you're going to underbid it the first time. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say switch your whole business over in one date because you'll, you will start out underbidding. Very interesting. Does that seem like something you can do? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, but but your cautions were also very important because quite frankly, yesterday, two days ago, I got a call from someone about a fantastic sounding project. And I was even thinking, well, maybe value-based pricing would work with them because it's super important to their company. It's high stakes. They look around for other people. They couldn't find anyone they called me but it's a lot of stuff i've never done before and i'm not even sure how to estimate it and beyond that they said there's a very strict deadline and so taking it 
recount everything you've said. I don't know if that's where I want to start with value yeah. pricing because I could end up really getting in trouble on that one. Yeah, lots of red flags there. You want to start out with something that's like, I don't know, what's a typical length project for you? Like, uh, is there a typical length one? No, I mean, sometimes they're a week or two. I, I, you know what? Well, let's say two to three months, something like that. That's, yeah, that's so, not, I probably about two or three of those a year, a year at least. Mm-hmm. So you probably want to do one that is, the tricky part is, like what I want to say is you want to do the smallest one possible. But the hard part with that is the smaller projects get, the less there's any value there. It's just some annoying thing that, like our, the MailChimp changed their API and somebody needs to update the PHP code to in- integrate. It's like, they're, they're like, this thing broke and we need someone to fix it. That's not a good fit for a value-based project because it's just a repair, basically. Uh, but if, when someone is laying the groundwork for a big change, so something, it's, it's really hard to do a value-based thing that's shorter than like at least a month. Uh, because you, unless, I mean, I suppose it's possible that you could do something, software development project in a month that actually does add tons of value for some reason. If that came on your radar, that would be the one to do. But they were usually around three months when I was doing a lot of that stuff. Um, occasionally they'd be longer, but we'd have some kind of like, exceptional circumstances in those cases. Like I never want to take a check from someone that's more than $100,000 because that just means the project is probably too big for me to do by myself. So it's hard. It's a little tricky. You just want to take on as little risk as you can. Another good time to do it is when you are having a good cash flow period and you could take a hit in case you do underbid it. That's another thing to think about. Or another thing to do is just bid it really high, like double what you would normally uh, in which case you probably won't get it <laughs> because if you're not good at <laughs> establishing the value in their mind before you send the quote, they'll be like, is this guy crazy? And like get, totally get sticker shock. But usually when I send a quote to someone, it's short document. It doesn't, it barely says anything. It's, it's basically, it reiterates what we talked about. Like we already agreed what's happening. And the only thing they need to know is how much it's going to cost. But I already know from talking to them that it's going to be a major change for their business and I made sure that they understand how big a change for their business it's going to be. So let me put that in context. Somebody will call me up and be like, uh, we need you to build a reporting solution that allows us to generate PDFs, like I said before. And I say, well, okay, that's actually, you know, whatever. I'm like, why do you need that? Well, we need that because, um, you know, there are people that, because if we don't have these reports, then we really don't know what's going on with their finances. And last year we got in big trouble with the IRS because of that. I'm like, okay, um, why don't you just hire someone to, to do that? Like software projects are expensive. You know, hiring me is expensive. You can hire a full-time accountant to sit in your, you know, office for 70 grand at the most. And they'll say, well, we, we can't do that because X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. So now I know right away that, um, you know, they'll say something like, oh, we don't have a desk. We'd have to move to a bigger office. Or they, they come up with some reason why they can't just hire someone. So I know right away that there's at least $70,000 worth of value there because hiring a person is like, like I, the thing that I build is going to replace a person who they can't even hire if they wanted to for whatever reason. So I'm like, all right, so let's say I do this for, so then figure first year alone, it's probably worth between 70 and a hundred thousand dollars in risk aversion, let's say. And I'd say, all right, I'll do it for 10 grand. And they say, fabulous, because I've already put it in their mind that they're saving that salary. You know, this is a, this is a $70,000 a year person you don't have to hire because of the software that I'm delivering. If you just say like, uh, you know, if they say, oh, it's just a couple of PDFs. What's the big deal? $10,000. That's crazy. You know, you need to have that conversation first. So they're thinking in the same terms you're thinking in. Otherwise, they're just going to be like, 
they'll just throw it back in your face. So like right. I said, it's a, it's a right. whole different a whole different type of relationship. It's almost like you're going in, it's like how you would treat your wife. If she needed some help, you wouldn't just do it. She'd be like, oh, you know, I need, I need this thing for, for my business. I need these reports. You, you know how to do this stuff, right? And you'd be like, yeah, I could do that, but why don't you just hire someone? You know, it's like, then she would be like, well, I can't hire someone because then, you know, I work from home, as, as you know, and then the lady would be in our house every day and it'd be super uncomfortable. Like, okay, you know, maybe there's another way we can solve this. And that's how you would be with anybody that you're close with. It's, it's almost as if in your conversation, you want them to reach the conclusion that perhaps they've already reached because they've come to you as a software person. But you want them to reach the conclusion that there are so many different ways to solve this problem and all of them are worse than implementing software. And so mm. software is the way to go. And so it's going to save them, like it's the best bang for the buck, the best ROI. Thus, whatever we pay you is better than any other thing out there. Yeah, it gets almost comical at times. I'm basically trying to talk them out of hiring me. You know, I'll be like, you don't really want to hire me. And I'm really expensive. You could do all these other things. And they'll say, no, nah, we can't do that because of this. And we can't do that because of this. And we can't do that because of this. And they're basically talking themselves into paying my exorbitant fees. But they're not really exorbitant because it, it's, like I said before, it's like usually a 10x return on the investment. So, like, where else do you get a 10x return on your money? Nowhere. If it was a 2x return, they'd be happy. Mm-hmm. But you need to make sure that that perception is alive and well in their mind when they get the 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 quote from you. Otherwise, it's going to look like a giant number. Right. Very interesting. All right. And that it is that helpful or am I just confusing you more? Yeah. No, 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 no. This is super, super helpful. Super helpful. And I would say it dovetails in many ways with the things that Brennan Dunn says also. But it, like it's shifted obviously slightly, but... I think I now have a much better idea of the sorts of conversations to try to have with clients. And the fact that it'll take some practice and take some time is also encouraging, mm-hmm. right? Like it's not going to be a home run on the first try. Yeah, you don't just go from white belt to black belt. There's steps in between. So, you know, it's not like you don't just flip a switch. You need to really, really, the light bulb really needs to go on. And it did for me. I had, it was like epiphany style type of revelation to me. So I was like, I there was no, I was not feeling by the hour again. I, I couldn't live with myself if I did that. And to me, it's almost unethical to do that because it allows you to do so many, as we've talked about, it just allows all sorts of bad things into the relationship that I didn't like. Like I want to deliver 100% customer satisfaction every time. To me, that's my deliverable, 100% customer satisfaction. And I couldn't do that billing by the hour. So I had to come up with something else. Very cool. Well, I think we're kind of at the end of the time. So, uh, should we get to the picks? Yes. All right. Ruben, picks? Sure. I got one pick for this week. It's a, a shared drawing app called Twidla, T-W-I-D-D-L-A.com, that I was just introduced to in an online meeting that I had last week. And it was, I'm sure there are lots of these out there, but it was easy to use, fun to use, similar setup, browser compatible, all that other stuff. Um, and there are many times when I've wanted some sort of shared whiteboard, shared drawing program to just throw up on the screen and send a URL to my uh, clients. So I definitely, if you don't, if you don't have one, I definitely recommend trying this. Easy and at least free for simple bad drawers like me. Anyway, so just just one for this week, but uh, that's it. All right, Curtis, what are your picks? Yeah, my pick this week is going to be Kirk Bowman and the Art of Value podcast, um, which just talks about all about how you should be selling on value. And he also does consulting. If you want to learn how to value price, you can hire him as a coach and he will help teach you how to value price. 
he actually attributes his conversion to value-based pricing on a panel a number of years ago with our esteemed guest here today. Yes, I know Kirk well. He's one of my first coaches. Awesome. I'm going to pick a book that I think I picked last week, but some of the stuff we talked about is really relevant to it. It's uh, Become a Key Person of Influence. It's a book about kind of becoming one of the top known people in whatever field you're in. And, you know, there's a lot of information in there about finding a niche and things like that. And then there's also information in there on how to become recognized as a leader in the field. And then from there, you can basically do what Jonathan is doing here with the mobile consulting, you know, because you become known as the person to go to for mobile consulting. And then you can start talking to people and finding work and things like that. And then you can start, you know, offering your expertise and uh, services based on the reputation that you've built. So, Jonathan, what are your picks? Uh, I would say the Pebble Steel smartwatch, but I think that came up on a previous recent episode. That's okay. You can pick uh, it but again. I absolutely love yeah, I absolutely love the Pebble Watch, and it it was one of those things. I I have a, a half dozen smartwatches. I test them for part you know for my business, and I just it's the only one I never stopped wearing. I just love it. Uh, it's great. Works on you know I have a million different phones, so I can switch it back and forth between iOS and Android at least. The battery lasts forever. It does just what you need and nothing more. It's fabulous. It's what a smartwatch should be. The other thing, if we have a couple picks, the other mm-hmm. thing is another gadget. I'm a huge gadget guy. Is the Google Chromecast dongle? I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but uh, it's an incredibly low price HDMI dongle that you plug into the back of your TV, and you can basically throw videos to it from tons of different devices and apps. Especially, uh, it's especially good on Android. But uh, I use it all the time. It's fabulous. Uh, so that, and it's incredibly cheap. I think it's like 25 bucks. You can find it on sale. Uh, but I highly recommend those. That's that's all I have, just those two. Awesome. If people want to hire you for mobile stuff or get more information about value-based pricing and how to get away from hourly billing, uh, how do they do that? If you want to find out more about value-based billing, you can come to jonathanstark.com slash mentoring. And uh, I do a six-month program with people, basically kind of hold their hand through the process of focusing your marketing, attracting clients, understanding how to do a quote, what leads up to the quote, how to write it, et cetera, et cetera, the whole thing. If people are interested in training, you can find all that stuff there as well. I'm working on a a book that's going to be out in January called The Mobile Retrofit Guide, which is useful for people who can't do a responsive redesign of their site. You should do a responsive redesign, but sometimes people can't do that. And so I am writing a book with 10 ways or 10 sort of easy tweaks you can do to your site in under an hour to make it a lot better on mobile. So those are all fun things that you can check out at jonathanstark.com. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming. Uh, We're going to go ahead and wrap up the show, and we'll catch everyone next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? 
We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash form. 